listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So, Jeff, we're actually going to bring back one of the earliest recorded episodes we ever did today. So it was based on a foundational ebook you wrote called The BSFPS. It's one of the earliest recordings we did back in 2018. And you and I were chit-chatting about it a week or two ago. And, and we said, well, why don't we bring it back and let's talk about it again. So what we're going to do today is we're going to replay portions of that episode as a portion of, of the new episode. And then we're going to talk about what's changed. So, but before we do that, why are we talking about this? So the essence of the BSFPS, from my perspective, as I understand it as an outsider, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a thought process you originally drafted, of course, is that the BSFPS is essentially what limits firms from reaching their full growth potential. And you just said something before we hit record that I want you to share about why this matters, because it's really important and it explains why we're going to talk about this again. So talk us through this real quick. Well, the, the BS of, of PS really evolved out of, you know, my own experience in professional services, having come from outside the industry into the industry. I was able to kind of juxtapose, you know, the non-PS world with the PS world. And I reached this conclusion that so many firms, and I really solidified it as a, as a consultant, that so many firms do not realize their growth potential. And they know they're not realizing their growth potential, but they define the problem wrong. And they generally define the problem in terms of the marketing function or the marketing disciplines. For example, we don't have enough brand awareness or something along those lines. If we just had more meetings, we would close plenty more business because we always close. We're really good in the room. Just get us in the room. We're really good, but nobody knows who we are, right? Nobody knows who we are. Yeah. That's how that yeah, yeah. tends to, to manifest. So they define the problem wrong, wrong, wrongly. They wrongly define the problem. Incorrectly. Incorrectly. <laughs> yes, that's an even better word. <laughs> this is why I'm so much better at writing than podcasts. Way to draw the listeners in, man. <laughs> yes. yes. Keep going. I'm teasing you. So to me, the BS of PS highlights all those issues and hurdles that get in the way of realizing your growth potential because they're all upstream issues that get in the way of effective sales marketing and i would i would argue client delivery as well and the firms that recognize that this phenomenon of the BS of PS exists, I think are the firms that gravitate to the top uh, performers. Yeah, they're the firms that thrive. So as, as we listen to, we're going to listen to the, 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 a portion of the episode. And what I'm going to point out to listeners now is really the, the BS of PS is sort of, I'll describe it as, you know, as a framework really to think about what limits growth potential. And I kind of said, there's like two buckets here. There's sort of like a structural bucket. There's an issue of structural issues. 
that are somewhat unique to professional services firms through the, the nature of the way that professional services firms are organized and constructed and, and owned and operated. And there's human issues that we talk about in this in this episode that are sort of heightened in professional services firms. There, there are things that exist in almost all companies, but for some reason, the nature of a professional services firm, I think, actually heightens these human issues some. And that whole soup together blocks growth potential and manifests itself, as you said, in other things that we think are wrong that we need to deal with. So we're going to take a listen to the episode and then all within this episode, we're going to talk about it. And what we want to talk about is because this was first recorded in 2018 is what's changed. And the central question of, of today is, is it getting better or is it getting worse? But before we go there, I have a quick question for you. One of the things that's come back as feedback from, from people that we know over the last five years about this concept of the BSFPS is, is it insulting? You know, when you say something like this, is it insulting to, to listeners? Is it insulting to professional services firm leaders? And I know you wanted to comment on that, and I think we should comment on that. I remember the first time a friend of mine made a comment about how I positioned and articulated this dynamic in professional services firms and felt that the language that I used was insulting to professional services firms. And we had a, a other listeners that had raised that concern as well. And I thought it was fascinating because that was never, ever the intent. And as I, I reflected on that, I realized that the people, and it was a small group of people that made that those comments were all consultants serving the professional services industry. So they provided consulting or writing or whatever types of, of services to professional services firms. And they took exception with, with how it was articulated. So I went out to the professional services firms, clients and, and, and non-clients alike in sales interactions after speaking opportunities and asked them this question about, was this offensive? And I have yet to hear one professional services firm say that the way I shape this and the way I articulate it is insulting. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. I hear things time and time and time again about, wow, nobody has articulated that so clearly. Nobody has even articulated. You've put name and attributes to something that we all feel and experience, but never seem to talk about. And to me, that just reinforces that it is, in fact, you know, a, a very valid and valuable thinking to firms. And it's the exception that think otherwise, because the people that have been immersed in this type of environment know exactly what I am talking about. And it is an incredible conversation starter with anybody that works in a professional services firm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree with you, by the way. I think if you take the soundbite, the title, it's easy to think it's insulting. But once you go underneath it and understand what it actually means, then you suddenly realize it's just describing what's really going on. And I think for firm leaders, they relate to what's presented to them and they see it in their own firms. And hence they go, yeah, that's exactly what we're struggling with. How do we fix it? All right, let's take a listen. And when once we've taken a listen, Let's talk about what's changed. Because again, it's been five years since we first recorded this. So 
I'm excited to get your thoughts on on what's getting better and what's getting worse. And I certainly have my own opinions as well. So I'll talk to you again here in about 20 minutes. So you're telling me a story about McKinsey from the book, The Firm, which is the legacy book about McKinsey. <laughs> yes. And I recommend it to anyone that lives in the professional services world. It's by Duff McDonald. It's, it's an excellent book. It's a it is an unbelievable book and it's a fabulous read too, because it's not at all what you would think. I use the book and a story from the book that really resonated with me because it reflected my experience as a marketer in, in two decades in professional services. And the story was how McKinsey's CEO had fired the head of marketing or communications, whatever the moniker was for the firm, because of an interview in Business Week that was very negative about the firm. And I found it intriguing because marketing is often a scapegoat for problems related to growth or public reputation. But McKinsey did not have a marketing problem. They had a cultural problem, and that cultural problem poured out into the public market. And the problem that McKinsey was having that the then CEO was so obsessed with growth, financial growth and office expansion, that the partners had reached a point where they thought that that growth had cost the firm it's soul. I know you're not one of the people that's saying this, but what do they mean by that? What do you think they mean by that? When someone says it's cost us our soul, what are they even saying? I think every firm at its very heart knows itself. It knows its values. It knows its value to its market. And the individuals know why they want to be a part of that organization. And when the organization heads down a direction that deviates from that sense of self, people begin to feel it. And they may not recognize it out of the gate, but they begin to see something's not right here. And there were a lot of other things going on at McKinsey at that time related to that CEO's tenure that ultimately ended up in an indictment of that CEO. In a court of law? Yes. Oh, okay. But, but the initial reaction is to blame marketing um, yeah. on the issues, blame, on the messages. Blame the people the that let the story get out. Yes. And throttle the story versus looking at what is wrong here in the first place that people are feeling this way and, and publicly saying these things to journalists, mind you. Exactly. Okay. And that was pre-social media as well. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an even more relevant dynamic today. But it helped me kind of coalesce my experience at other firms that had gone through similar life cycles, if you will. And I became kind of infatuated with this topic, particularly because I didn't grow up in professional services. I grew up in a family business. I grew up in the auto parts industry, which was probably the antithesis of the white shoe world of, of professional services. 
And I just loved observing how professionals interact with one another and the cultures of these firms that I was either a part of or that I serve as a consultant. And I noticed that professional services firms recruit some of the best minds in the world. Um, they come from phenomenal schools. They're, you know, cheerleaders and quarterbacks and top of their class and just phenomenal human beings that are really driven. But even with all those qualities, they run into these very human problems when they get together and are pursuing however they define success. And you see that in an individual level, you see it at a practice level, and oftentimes at a firm level. And I want to understand why could a very a firm filled with talented people collapse and one that's kind of maybe average talent, you know, and I, I put average in air quotes, really succeed. And it really came down to culture. And that's nothing new in and of itself. Because, you know, Peter Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast and Simon Sinek, you know, tells everybody to start with their why. I mean, these aren't new concepts, but I was fascinated with it in the professional services world. And I've come to reach this conclusion that professional services firms, by their very nature, because their matrix, because their performance measures are based on billable hours and practice growth and other kind of decentralized performance metrics, that what they sell is intangible, highly fungible, very competitive environments, that they create very, very one-of-a-kind environments. And how you deal with those issues really dictate whether or not a firm is going to be successful and ultimately leave a legacy in being one of the best in fill in the blank. So let me ask a question. Is the hypothesis of the story that teams beat individuals, you know, that the firm with the most talent may underperform or even fail and the team with the average talent could outperform its potential or outperform its peers and succeed greatly by the inherent nature of the team, the way they assemble a team and the way that they define their culture. Is that the essence of the... I think teamwork is is part of it, but that's not the totality. Okay. It's a recognition that professional services systems are plagued with two dimensions that I think make them unique. One might argue, well, that exists in all of humanity, but for all intents and purposes, I think it's unique to professional services. And the first one is the structural dimension. You don't normally see matrix organizations anywhere else but in professional services. Let's define what we mean by a matrix organization, because that's I've seen them lots of places, I think. So define what we mean by a matrix organization. So a matrix organization in the professional services world is normally overlapping P&Ls and management responsibilities for individuals so that you're serving multiple masters at once. You could be part of a geography. You could be part of a practice. You could be part of an industry 
all at one time. You might be part of multiple industries <laughs> or drawn into other geographies to serve a particular type of client as well. And, and those this is are the, the classic. I have a dotted line to syndrome. Yes. Right. I report it's to there. Bill, but I have a dotted line to Lisa. Uh, OK, what does the dotted yeah. line mean? OK, we've had lots of clients with that. And I always laugh because I say, well, what does the dotted line mean? And nobody really knows. A yeah. dotted line means lots of confusion, politics and trying to balance a lot of attributes, you know, in the world of relationships and realizing my own definition of success. So that is unique, I think, in professional services. And when you mix in that kind of structure with the human attribute that are personalities that are attracted to professional services, they're normally really smart. They're individuals that are used to being successful in high school and college academically and perhaps athletically or in other performance measures. There's more structural dimensions to that, though. I mean, I know you'll be shocked. I did read the whole ebook, but the because <laughs> you threw out more. And I think there's more that are that are also meaningful to touch on before you go to the human attributes. You know, you, you threw out, well, a couple of the, the two that jumped out to me that you threw out was one, just the at times myopic focus on billability, right? The, the, the intense pressure there is to deliver a certain utilization level in terms of billability that sometimes governs the whole firm. Actually, sometimes it consumes the firm, right? Mm-hmm. The other one you threw out that I liked a lot was inefficient resource allocation, which was which doesn't seem unique to professional services, really. I, I suppose almost every company I've ever dealt with, you, you see that, right? Because I think the argument you make in the ebook, which is a really good one, is that too often resources are allocated based on maybe scale of a practice or the personality of the leader of that practice versus the growth potential of the practice. And that's sort of inefficient. Well, not sort of, that's completely inefficient. So are there any other structural dimensions that are worth noting? I guess is was the question. A really important one is the nature of partnerships. Hmm. That and, and not all professional services anymore are partnerships. You you see, you know, these in in other structures, but there's still the the overarching structure of I've been here. I paid my dues. I have a certain amount of equity, however that equity is distributed. And that creates, again, that human dynamic of live and let live, a lot of backroom deals and negotiating, building up constituencies in order to affect change. There certainly is more more requirement for leaders to establish consensus than in any other typical business. And we see a lot of, I mean, a lot of AE firms are ESOPs or, you know, employee owned entities, or they're very diversified ownership groups. So 17, 18, 25 owners or more or whatever, right? And on some level, even if there is a CEO or a firm leader, they're they're bound by sort of building consensus on any any meaningful decision. And sometimes I'm sure you've seen this too, is that sometimes there's rotating CEOs. You ever seen that where they sort of establish a, a figurehead who's the leader and they rotate them out every two years on a, on a structured cycle, mm-hmm. which seems odd. I mean, at the end of the day, if you've got 20 partners, whatever the number is, doesn't matter. 
you, wouldn't you want to pick the one who's the best leader, <laughs> the one that has the best ability to lead the firm forward wherever it's going to go and let them run their course for five years, eight years, 10 years versus, you know, rotate them out because their time is done. You know, anyway, so, yeah. so those are some yeah. of the structural dimensions that are unique to professional services firms to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. I think the other one that you've kind of alluded to there is this path of least resistance in professional services firms. And I think this leads as a result of the decentralization is firms are political and partners like to keep their powder dry. So it's sometimes it's just a lot easier to go along to get along. Can I pick at the metaphor real quick? When we say powder dry, what are, what are you saying? <laughs> You're saying that they that they have gunpowder that they're not using in a, in a, in a yes. gunfight? Is that yes? Okay. It's a military expression. Yeah, that's a really healthy metaphor to have for your business. You know that that it's not it's not a collaborative discussion about where we're going. It's a gunfight in the back of the conference room between some partners, some of yeah. which don't want to shoot. Keep going. I'm sorry. So <laughs> you might say they choose their battles. What what right. they end up doing is saying, "Hey, go do whatever you're going to do. If it doesn't impact me." I don't care. Mm. And as a result, everybody's running in their own direction, doing their own thing. That's hard to scale. Yes, very hard to scale. Yeah. And a lot of firms ultimately really aren't one firm firms. They're just a bunch of individuals running around under some umbrella brand that is so, I don't know, all encompassing. It means nothing to anybody, whether that's externally or internally. I remember we built, and we're going to leak out of this for a second. I remember we built this website for this engineering firm, and it's been over a decade now, 10 or 11 years ago. And in the process, we had gone through a whole bunch of repositioning work and rebranding work and just a lot of deep thought about where the firm was going to compete, why they were competing, where they were competing, and how we wanted to tell that story. And we get to the 11th hour to launch this site. And there's this guy that's got this tiny little like practice that's way outside the wheelhouse of everything we've talked about, way off to the side. There's no plans to grow this practice. There's no marketing or business development resources put towards this practice. There's there's really, he's managing a couple of accounts and, and that are healthy and profitable and he's doing his thing and everything's fine. And in the 11th hour of a web launch, we have to sandwich this guy's like whole practice into the model because we didn't want to upset him. And I was just sort of like taken aback because I'm saying, well, we're, we have no plans to grow this practice. We have no marketing resources to grow this practice. We have no business development resources to grow this practice. Why do we need to do this? And your answer, you know, you say is exactly what you just said was like, well, you need to appease that person because their ego has been damaged. And it was really crazy. And that happens every day in professional yeah. service where one person can say, hey, I'm a product, put me up there. I need to see that. And I think that is the most obvious illustration of the path of least resistance. And it is a good segue into the second attribute, the human attribute that is unique in professional services. So before we go there, though, can we summarize a little bit about the structural dimensions? Because it seems to me that the structural dimensions collectively, all these things together, the matrix organization, the billability, the partnership model, you know, or the employee-owned model creates this path of least resistance. It all bundles up together to say that this is something that's really hard to scale for all of these complexities. Is that kind of the summation of those things? Yes, but yes, it, but. Is okay. it, is, it is scalable and the firms that scale well recognize these structural defects, these roadblocks that create dysfunction mm. and take them head on. 
those that don't take the path of least resistance, like you just described in terms of, oh, here's a partner or a potential partner needs a book of business, you know, put his moniker out on the website and build him, you know, write him a brochure and do a webinar for him or whatever. It, It just siphons off resources that could really drive growth. And that happens every day. But the path of least resistance really begins to manifest itself culturally because partners want to keep their powder dry or choose their battles, often live and let live. And when you get bad behaviors, whether that's ethical bad behavior, managerial bad behavior, business development bad behavior, client service bad behavior, you're less inclined to confront and correct that behavior of another partner. That sends out reverberations throughout the firm that then begin to really cause negative effects across the firm and real dysfunction. So all of those structural things are important, but they lead to this path of least resistance. Let's just let them do what they're going to do and we'll get on with it. Like it's an ostrich head in the sand, it will self-correct. And it just doesn't. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. All right. So let's talk about the second dimension then. So the first dimension is all is these structural issues that make it hard to scale, that put our heads in the sand and we hope we'll correct themselves. The second group is the human attributes of any organization, right? So let's talk about that. So you said, hey, we have really smart people. They're, they're used to success. They're used to lots of success. What, what else is beneath that? They are used to lots of success, but they are often very insecure. And we see this, I mean, there's even been studies on it that talk about how experts see themselves. Those that think that their skills are actually more expert than they are, are those that are more expert than people want to actually own. It's a, it's, illustrated so directly in professional services because our product is our thoughts, is our ideas, is our results. And human beings want to be a part of something. They want to be part of the group, but they also want to be recognized as different, better, give me a trophy, you know, recognize me in front of my peers as being exceptional. Those are are really important types of dimensions. But human beings are human beings, and we are all motivated by some fear. And I don't care if it is, you know, the most beautiful girl in high school who thinks she's unattractive. It's the valedictorian who thinks he's not smart enough. It is the athlete that thinks... He doesn't run fast enough, far enough, hit hard enough, score enough goals, whatever the case may be. Their success is driven by their insecurity of their fear. And 
when we see that type of behavior manifest, it looks like an inability to say either to a client or to my team, I don't know an answer for, you know, 99% of consultants saying, I don't know, is almost impossible to do. Yeah. And we, you know, Charlie Green talks about this quite a bit in the trusted advisor and how important it is to be able to articulate that in order to build trust. But it's such an issue that he's writing books around it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think that that's really interesting. I want to sum something up real quick. I want to make sure I understand. So the BS of PS is a phrase you've coined, right? You're using it to describe what you're saying is the dysfunctionality of a professional services firm, correct? Yes. And there are many other terms that encapsulate this. And that the central argument is that the dysfunctionality comes from these two dimensions. It's this combination of a structural, man, I was about to say disability, but that's not the right thing. The structural element of the firm combined with the propensity of the firm to collect these really highly successful individuals that, like everyone, are motivated by some level of fear, but unlike many, maybe have not experienced that many failures. That to me is the big thing that jumped out in the, when I was reading it was that when you stop and think about it in, in business today, we spend a lot of energy talking about the incredible importance of failure. VCs are more likely to fund early stage companies where the, they have seasoned managers who have shown past failure. They'd much rather see a seasoned executive who's already failed than a younger executive who's never failed, right? Mm-hmm. And I know even when I think about with my kids, I talk when we talk about learning, I'm much more interested in seeing my kids struggle and fail and respond than knock out A's all day when as they get older. Like there, there's no learning that happens from being in a situation where it's, it's easy and you succeed every time. Learning happens when you're challenged and you're struggling and maybe you even fall down and then you pick back up again. And so on some levels, I would argue that that is an interesting notion that the likelihood that these firms are bringing in people who have experienced failure is lower <laughs> than a firm that's mm-hmm. not hiring from the top of the top, right? Mm-hmm. So these two things together sort of ultimately create the dysfunctionality of the firm. This is the essence of the first half of this argument. Now, the second half of your argument, if I understand it, and I'm paraphrasing on your behalf, and now you can jump in and say, no, you're wrong, is that those two things together keep firms from meeting their full growth potential. Yes, wholeheartedly. Okay. Now let's talk about the remedies to that. So let's talk about, so if that's the case, what do I do about it? If I'm a firm leader, like, or just a firm, I don't even know who the person is, but how do I overcome these two big barriers that are making my firm dysfunctional and are blocking our ability to get what we really want? So I've already kind of alluded that those that are aware of it, that it's inherent in these systems, they make a choice to not let it hinder the firm. So they own it. Others that don't address it, just allow it to continue unabated. And what it becomes is just sand in the machine, bringing the gears to a crawl. And normally, I've seen four reasons why these behaviors continue within firms and hinder their growth. And the first one is uh, the firm has a culture of, of optionality, going back to the path of least resistance. You know, I have my utilization and my revenue number. 
I'm just going to hit it. Just leave me alone. I'm not going to do anything else unless it's going to impact that. So just go away. So any attempt to make a more cohesive firm falls by the wayside. The second is there's a culture of, of feigned accountability. We have all these value posters and brand initiatives in so many firms talking about, hey, we hold one another accountable, but most firms don't. They just present it as if, and they just keep doing what they're going to do. If, if there's accountability, you're going to see a firm firing people for bad behavior. And it's not just bad behavior that makes it out into the press. It's the bad behaviors that only one or two people see. They put an end to it right there. They hold people accountable for what they're doing. Third, these firms punish risk-taking. To your point earlier about failing, they look down on failing. I have a fear of failing, therefore, that's going to manifest in how I communicate with others and my expectation of them as well as myself. I think top firms say failing is okay as long as we take the personal responsibility, own it, learn from it, and disseminate that knowledge through the firm. I have a quote popped up in my head from a client engagement, and I won't name any names, but it was this client said to me in this review we're doing, he said, we can do anything we want as long as it's profitable from day one. And I love the quote because it speaks to so many of the things you're talking about, right? We can do anything we want. Pause for a second. That implies the decentralized sort of chaotic mess that firms can be. And as long as it's profitable from day one is exactly what you just said. Like, we're not going to take on any real risk here, right? Like, that's that's scary. I just dropped in my head and I had to share it because it just just describes so clearly what you're saying. So, okay. So, four reasons and I cut you off. So, reason four is... And the fourth reason is it requires these human beings to act in an unnatural way in the professional services world. One, you have to have uncomfortable conversations. And the path of least resistance is sure a lot nicer than confronting somebody. Two, you have to trust others when the heat is on. And you can tell whether there's trust in a firm or not fairly quickly by things like cross-selling effectiveness and one partner's willingness to take another partner out there and trust that partner with his precious client relationship. People are not inclined to do that in most firms. Hmm. Three, you got to get rid of some billable time. You have to give time for these uncomfortable conversations of the learning of the failure and that those things just take time, which is leads me to the fourth one is these firms that are successful doing this are thinking long term. They are seeing themselves as stewards of a firm that they want to leave better off for the next partners or group of people coming through. They don't manage month to month or quarter to quarter. They manage decade to decade. And it's just a fundamental difference. And we all know that. We all know that a public versus a private company, but this is that on steroids. So those those are why they continue unabated. But that's why the problems continue unabated. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's it's unnatural for people. I have a another story and then I want to ask you something. So 
You ever see the Jerry Seinfeld episode where he talks about how you can sense when a show is not going to finish the way you hoped it would. So you're watching the show and you're into it and you can't wait to see what's going to happen. And then you look at the clock and it's like at 28 minutes and there's no way they're going to be able to wrap this story before it ends. <laughs> you ever see that one? No, but please keep going. I can picture it in my mind. So that's totally where we are. <laughs> I feel like we've dissected this, the problem, you know, what, what creates the BSFPS, what creates the dysfunctionality so articulately well. And my sense is we've probably overrun our time, which means we have to punt the solution to the next episode. <laughs> that's why I shared that story. So that means same bat time, same bat place, same bat battle. <laughs> to hear how you solve this problem. So, but before we stop and before we part, one of the things I'm curious if you know, and I don't know, is you open this with this story about McKinsey and this this really captivating and interesting story about the, the marketing leader that gets fired because the cultural base, the culture basically bleeds out into the press in a way that the leaders find unflattering. And then you mentioned, hey, the CEO gets indicted. Do you know the end of that story? Can, can you share that with us? Do you know what, what happens next? Because I'm dying to know. I don't know what happens next. I don't know this story. You'll have to download the white paper or read the firm to find out. <laughs> I must not have finished that because I think I, I don't think I made it through the whole the whole book. I think I kind of tuned out after a while. <laughs> All right. Well, I sincerely enjoyed hearing you talk through this idea of the BSPS because you and I have talked about it loosely multiple times at different episodes. And this is the first time I've heard you sort of articulate it end to end, well, not end to half end, I guess. So thank you. My pleasure. All right. So having heard the full context of our conversation from five years ago, let's just jump right into the beginning. So really, as I said at the opening of this, I feel like there's sort of two components to this. It's the structural piece and the human piece. What do you think is getting better? I certainly have one big thought of what, of something that's definitely gotten better over the last five years. And, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, is, is the BSFPS getting better? Is it getting worse? What's getting better? What's getting worse? I've thought long and hard about that. I've reached a conclusion that I don't think much has changed. I don't, so, I don't on. think, I don't think things are getting There's, better. And, and the so reason much they're changed not in the last better, five years. All right. Well, I want to hear what you have to say, but from my perspective, okay. the, the, the structural dimensions of firms have not changed dramatically. If they have, those that have become perhaps more corporate are seeing some, some benefits from it. But I, I don't know that, that those structural changes are, are industry wide, therefore having a large impact. And the second dimension is definitely not change. Humans are humans and will always be humans. God love them, but they're going to be <laughs> humans. We have our foibles. I'm starting to wonder, do you only talk to me during the week? Don't you talk to other firm owners? All right. So um, <laughs> here, here's what, so some things that, that came to mind to me. So one thing that I do argue that this is industry, well, not necessarily industry-wide, but I think it's 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 a big change over the last five years that 
on the whole is for the better in terms of this, the things that block firms' growth potential. And the first is that we've seen a lot of new and more pervasive ownership models in professional services over the last five years. And so we've heard this in multiple episodes, right? We have a lot more private equity money coming into the architecture and engineering space. So external capital coming in with expectations of growth and return, higher expectations of growth and return than owner operators have. And we see a lot of growth capital coming at the IT services space. We've had Tercera on here, you know, so capital funds that are showing up to fund services businesses, you know, and years ago, they didn't really want to fund services businesses, they wanted to fund product businesses. And so what comes with equity capital is higher expectations for growth, higher expectations for performance. And actually also, usually what comes with it is some advisors from outside the industry that are sort of helping, I think, leaders get out of their own head a little bit and start to see some of the structural challenges that they face and how to overcome them. So in that sense, I think that the structural side of this is definitely getting better in a lot of firms because so much of the structural BS of PS does relate to the ownership models and the structural models. So so that's it in the column of what's getting better. And I think that that has a very positive effect. And the firms that I've interacted with and got to know, when they, when they do have that type of capital environment, oftentimes, instead of it being a ex-consultant or ex-engineer that's the managing partner, some frequently it's it's a business person and that business person just brings a different context to things. So that's the dimension that I think is changing. And I, I, I think it's changing. It, it is helping things for the better in a number of firms and then also on the whole, because it is, you know, it's a big movement in different sectors. So that's my better. And I'm getting my worst. That's an interesting point and, and a good one. Every once in a while, you you come up with one on that. That's because I talk to people. You know, you're only talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah, teasing. <laughs> yeah. It is a good point. It's a fair point. And I think you provide some, some great examples. It is not systemic. It is focused on, I think, a, a subset. But your point sure. your point. But it's is, not just ones and twos, right? It's definitely. Right. right. Fair enough. It's large capital flows. You know, yes. So, yes. Um, and to me, it kind of substantiates what I was was saying about you know firms becoming more corporate. Hundred uh, percent, it does. By the way, yes. And that, in 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 you highlighted you know a big driver behind them becoming more corporate. It's not just you know kind of a legal entity structure for liability purposes or or stuff like that. There or is some loose collection of ten ninety nines that's called a firm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and those dynamics still oh, still yeah. Oh, yeah. exist. Uh, I I would argue that that dynamic that you just created can exacerbate the BS of PS because it when you bring in that outside money like that that has a, a particular worldview and investment goal, it becomes more short term thinking. It's true, and as a result, or can't, it can, it can, it can, it can. I'm not saying all are that way, but that short term mentality can have a severe impact on the culture and the type of the work and the legacy and stewardship of the brand and the firm. When I say brand, I mean the firm's reputation and, and legacy for, yeah. for long term, not its logo and you know specific value proposition. Not not the fonts. I thought we were right. talking about the fonts. So to me, well, you've you've kind of refined 
the structural dimension and made that a little bit better per chance. You've offset the human side and created a, a different dynamic on that side of the equation that can exacerbate this. Well, the interesting thing is when I said what's gotten worse, I actually think that what we've experienced over the last three years in particular in some firms, the human side notion of the cultures of optionality that we talk about or you talk about a lot, I think has actually gotten worse. You know, so when we moved into a hybrid work, work from home environment in some firms, that made that optionality idea even worse because now it's not just if where I show up no longer matters, then how I show up may be irrelevant as well. And I'll tell a brief personal client story. We have a client where the subject matter expert, the practice lead, frequently will have meetings with us to, to work, shape an argument on a topic. She's so distracted, she's cooking a meal while she's working with us. You know, So she's in her kitchen you know, cooking a meal, trying to you know, work with us. I get it. We're an internal resource, an extension of an internal resource. We're not a client, very busy person, has a lot going on. But at the same time, I don't know if that's when you bring your best thinking, right? Is 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 when you're, you know, you're because you're distracted. You're just you're just distracted. And so I actually think like what's happened over the last few years has definitely heightened some of that culture of optionality in a lot of firms. And it's one that it's going to take a little while to claw back. And that's a bit of a specific example, but you know, it's it's a real thing. I had that one as well. You're spot on. It does reinforce not just the optionality, but it elongates the making of strategic choices as well. I've, I've seen that in, in my clients because, you know, they're virtual workforces. They just don't seem as cohesive. They like to think that they are, but they're closing offices and, and people are on the road. They're working across these wide time zones and, and there's just there's more pressure on the system, or I should say more sand in the gears that yeah. tend to slow things down as a result of that. I definitely think the the optionality has increased. Yeah. I, I guess I would say I agree with you conceptually, which is that I don't the net effect is I don't think that it's changed in the sense of like I do think in a lot of firms the structural components have gotten much better. So as a result, their ability to reach their full growth potential is probably higher. But then a lot of firms, the human elements have been exacerbated and have become more difficult to manage because of you know extenuating circumstances. And so as a result, the net effect over overall is is I think probably neutral, which is that, you know, things haven't gotten better or gotten worse. They just are. You know, the the weighting of the elements to me has probably changed a lot, but the net effect has not changed. It's still, you know, these structural issues around the matrix organization and people dimensions of managing the firm and managing the practices within the firm continue to create challenges for firms to overcome that that block growth potential. And in some ways they're 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 typical to any company, but in some ways they are they are different and unique to to firms and they have a, a greater need to overcome them. Or not a greater need. It's harder, harder for them to overcome. I think so, you just agreed with my opening well, I did agree with you. I just gave it a lot more nuance. <laughs> the dynamic here, and again, why this is, is really important, and we're skirting around it, is you need to understand what's the problem that you're solving. Is it a structural one? Is it a human one? Mm-hmm. It's not a marketing function or a sales function problem necessarily. It could be. That just could be symptomatic of something upstream in in one of these areas that is having an impact. But the bottom line to me, the thing that doesn't change, there's two things. One, 
is you have to have awareness of the dynamic, the structural and human dynamics and how they interrelate. Because if you don't understand the dynamic, you're making decisions in the wrong context, which is the second most important thing. The whole point of understanding this is to make smarter strategic choices and be able to sustain the execution of those choices. And, and I think this is important around your comments around the outside investment coming in in different kinds of minds and, and worldviews that enable strategic decision making, whether it's they mandate it or they put the pressure on to get, get the focus, whatever the case may be. It still comes down to making strategic choices and executing them. And that's where firms always seem to struggle is they're making the choices and the top firms are able to say, we're going to focus on A and not B and they stay focused on A until the outcome is reached. Yeah. I think that to me, what you just said, the part that I lean into is, is the la- the second half of that is that they might make, a lot of firms make the choice to focus on A, but not B. But inevitably, even though the choice was made, B just keeps leaking its way in and it keeps getting in the way. It keeps showing up again and, and people keep letting it happen, right? And so it's like they never made the choice in the first place. And so I, I think it's the, it's the having the, the backbone to stick with A and not B for extended periods of time that is so difficult. And I don't mean backbone of a leader or a person. It's like the backbone of the whole collective firm. Everybody has to kind of like say, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do random, random acts of marketing as an example, right? You know, things that are, are completely off the strategic path. Well, this was fun. It was, you know, we've never done this before. It was, it was neat to do this. It was neat to listen to our own thinking from five years ago and then think about how much it's changed or not changed. As usual, I'm right that it's changed a lot and you're wrong that it hasn't changed at all. No, I'm teasing. I think we both ended up in the same place, but I enjoyed it. It was a different experience. It was like an out-of-body experience in a way. We'll do this again. Yeah. And if any part of our discussion or replay insulted you, please send us an email and let us know now. <laughs> or if Join it spoke the club. to you, <laughs> let us know that. Well, as... the funny thing is, you know, when that when that came up and when it came up at the opening of this, I didn't say it, but like how many times have we talked about POV on this podcast? And, you know, a great point of view is going to attract and, and reject a little bit. And so it, I think in that sense, it's a great point of view for Prudent Pedal because a lot of people connect with it and some people may not, and that's okay. So anyway, it's a great discussion and talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.